Hello and welcome to See Mysterious Science, the podcast where we chat to people of a scientific persuasion about their life, their work, their passion, and that all over, over a couple of beers. Presenting this podcast is Stylianos, which Urban Dictionary describes as the closest a human being has ever come to being God. Next to me I got Lou, who according to Urban Dictionary is amazing in every sense. If you know a Lou, you're certainly very Lukey. We're two semi-successful PhD students at the CME Lab in Glasgow, which is a lab which utilizes the merger of different disciplines to study the interaction between cells, materials, and proteins. All of this to gain a fundamental insight into cell engineering. And well, cell yeah. <laughs> how was your week, Lou? How has it been? How have you been this week? It's been pretty good. It's been pretty good. I got back from America on Tuesday, um, and since then I've taken my cat to the vet. How are you, silly? How's your week been? Um, my week has been quite heavy at the start. I did some cell differentiation for people who are interested, uh, osteogenic differentiation. And then after that, I, the last couple of days, I was just planning on what present I should buy for my girlfriend, what Christmas present buy each other. So I have picked so one of them, good. so I need still a couple. But yeah, it's going well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, well, this is our first episode of this podcast that we're recording. So we're very excited to keep it, uh, to get it going. Exactly, so to uh, celebrate that this is our first podcast, we've got the co-founders of the CME Lab. Our first guest is a professor of cell engineering at the University of Glasgow and fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. His research is focused on how stem cells react to very small patterns on a surface and how they interact or respond to mechanical stimuli such as vibrations. We also call them the vibes. He's also an avid swimmer and scorn enthusiast. We'd like to welcome Professor Matt Dalby. Hello. And our other guest is Professor of Biomedical Engineering and co-director of CME at the University of Glasgow. His group looks at the interaction between materials and cells, particularly in developing polymers that trigger the self-assembly of proteins, which in turn promotes the efficiency of growth factor binding. Whose marathon running puts us all to shame is Professor Manuel Samuel Sanchez. Hola. So Manuel, as we pointed out, you run marathons. What is it that draws you to running and marathons in particular? Well, this this is a very difficult question because my approach to marathons was uh, a little bit by accident. I used to run and I enjoy running. I think it's a combination of the physical feeling, but primarily the, the, the mental state that I am in when I stop running. I don't enjoy while I'm running, but I only run because I know that after running, I'm going to have a sort of a peace of mind and more clarity. And that's, that feeling is even better if you run long distances. If I don't run, I miss this clarity of mind. What would you say are like the most impressive routes you've run? Like one of the most, you know, beautiful one. And what was the most challenging? The most beautiful one was definitely uh, Loch Ness Marathon in October. It's a very, it's a lovely environment. Fantastic. The more, the most difficult one, on the other hand, was the marathon that I ran three years ago in Singapore. That was hell, hot, humid, very difficult. I promised myself not to run again in <laughs> Singapore. Not to be out of this mat. So. As we have mentioned, you are a scone enthusiast. It says so on your Twitter bio. I'm a train down to London, actually. I was just looking through Matt's Twitter. I was reading all the tweets. And then 
uh, this tweet about scones came up, which I thought was quite interesting, quite interesting fact. Because yeah. professed love about scones. Strong words. I do love a scone. Yep, it makes me feel like I'm on holiday, which mm. I rather like. Oh, what about scones makes you feel like you're on holiday? Oh, I think it's because lots of my holidays when I was young were to Devon. Oh. And that is the home of scone, unless you're in Cornwall, which case you probably claim that is the home of the scone. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love scones, and being having a scone just makes me feel a little bit of relaxation. You know, I also like baking scones. This is important because when your children are young, mm-hmm. it's very easy to connect to them. They love you. But when they become teenagers, it's different, and they need you less. But actually, they still need you, but it's hard to make the connection. And so I bake scones with my daughter and that allows us to talk a little bit uh, so it's it's a connector so I, i've never been into baking or cooking anything but suddenly i do bake scones fairly regularly oh, my dad and i made custard rhubarb custard yeah when you were a teenager yeah well there you go yesterday no, <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to connect have you ever bought, baked some scones for manuel uh, some yep. vegan scones i've tried and manuel has baked scones for me as well Who's is better? Mine. <laughs> I'm not saying mine was competitive. Mine, <laughs> mine were a different version of scones. My scones were healthy scones. So mm. I feel like I like that more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> so we got to ask you the most important question, of course, which is, do you put the cream first or do you put the jam first on your scones? Uh, I like jam first. Jam Ooh, first on the scones. Yeah, jam mm. first. That's the way. Mm. You put jam on cream, it just makes a mess. Yeah, it's true, it's true. You, you have a point. You've got to sure. spread the jam, you can just dollop yeah, the cream. That's true. So when we were looking this up, we were going to see if we could rebut anything you said by looking for an ISO standard for scone preparation. Making. So for our listeners that might not know what ISO is, the ISO is an international organization for standardization and they have many protocols. Hmm. Um, they do not, however, have a scone for preparation, but we wondered if either of you knew about the ISO 3103. Any familiarity with that? Nope. I have no idea what the ISO 3103 is. It is a joy to share it with you because it is the ISO for tea preparation, hmm. which is a beverage I know you make for each other. Yes, well, I'm very fussy about tea. So tell me about oh, the ISO, because no, I'm, te- I'm here to tell you it is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you that Ireland, the country, has officially rejected this ISO for its Good. own premises. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, how do you prepare your tea? The tea bag should just see the water, oh. and then it should be milk. Yeah, it's, none of this three minutes nonsense. I think it depends on the tea. Uh, like standard tea. Oh, so like yeah, bag of tea. tea. Um, what kind of teapot do you use? Cup. No pot required. Ooh. The pot should be white porcelain or glazed earthenware. No, look. You're talking about industrial tea manufacture. This is ISO for industry. This is academia. The protocol up as we go along. If a small pot is used, it should hold a maximum of 150 milliliters, plus or minus 4 milliliters, mm-hmm. and must weigh 118 grams, plus or minus 10 grams. Mm-hmm. Would you say you're a cup? It complies with none of these rules. <laughs> I have to say. It goes on and on. Yeah, especially for math. It's very easy. Very quick. It, hot it's, water it's, milk. The thing is that you can use a tea bag more than once. <laughs> <laughs> but it has, to, it has to be brownish. It has to be brownish. But I, I, I reflect on Manuel's previous comment about marathon running, if I might. Of course. I, you know, I don't run marathons at all, but I do like to cycle and swim in the morning before work. And it's, I think it does take you to a place you can think better if you've exercised burn your nervous energy and you can think better. Not as clear, clear as or intense as a marathon. But intense is a word you'll hear Manuel use a lot. Mm-hmm. Everything is intense. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be. Yeah. 
talking about intents, one of the directions you're following in re research-wise is incorporating bacteria into biomaterials. And while that's not necessarily like an intense idea, it's definitely unconventional. Could you talk a little bit more about this? I think that one of the missing items in current paradigm of engineering materials is how to make them more dynamic and responsive towards the environment. And a few years ago, we thought that bacteria were elements that we have tools to manipulate genetically. We are not experts in gene editing of bacteria or anything like this, but we, we can use these tools to make bacteria interact with, uh, in a nice way with mammalian cells and stem cells. We don't work with stem cells. We have a lot of bacteria in our body, several billions of bacteria. Our intestine is full of bacteria. We eat bacteria every time with yogurt, for example. The strain that we use, Lactococcus lactis, is approved for a large number of uh, foods and other applications. And using this power of dynamic behavior of bacteria to control them in a way that we can establish a symbiotic relationship with cells. So bacteria respond to stimuli coming out of cells and they trigger different proteins or cytokines or whatever in response to stem cells. I think that's, it's, a, it's a new concept because traditionally bacteria has been considered just either in vitro contamination or an infection. But I think these are elements that we live with and we can use them in a more symbiotic way to help engineering environments as well. So do you think that the recent public awareness of the microbiota within our bodies has helped kind of enter that field within science and engineering? I think that bacteria are being seen less and less as a sign of infection and more as an element that we need to keep healthy as we keep healthy uh, ourselves as well. And that might might help to, to see bacteria performing different roles in the future. You touched upon symbiotic relationship just uh, previously. And I mean, I feel like that's kind of like the essence of your collaboration, actually, at founding CME. It's about a symbiotic relationship in a way between and kind of, you know, bridging biomaterials and then stem cell research and nano-kicked uh, stem cells together to create a, an, a great material that can be even better at regenerating bone. Uh, Matt, tell us a little bit about what you do and like nano-kicking. Uh, yeah, maybe what uh, nano-kicking is. Yeah, maybe what nano-kicking is <laughs> and well just uh, mentioned. Hi, it's Editing Stillian Lou. Now, every now and again in this podcast, we're going to have a little segment where we potentially define some terms that come up. So now like Dabwe's going to talk a little bit about metabolomics and metabolites. So Stilly, what are these things? Well, metabolism is the set of life-sustaining chemical reactions in organisms. Now, metabolites is the immediate end product of metabolism and metabolomics too. Well, just as genomics is the study of genes, metabolomics is the study of metabolites. So it's a large-scale study of the small molecules within your cells and it gives a really good indicator of what's occurring within the cells and how they're reacting to the environment. Well, let's get on with it. Yeah, let's get on with it. Yeah, sure. Uh, so really, I am more interested in the mesenchymal stem cell, although originally a chemist by training, I should say. But I find them fascinating. I'm particularly, particularly interested in the metabolome and how they can use metabolites and how we can use metabolites to control stem cells and really how we can use materials as discovery platforms. We always think about materials in terms of regenerative medicine and things like that. But they're a, a really great kind of non-invasive, in the terms of you're not pouring chemicals onto them, way of controlling cells to do things, and then you can use the materials to teach you what 
cells can do, be it mechanotransduction, be it metabolism, be it identification of activity metabolites, etc. Now, nanokicking, you know, this is not an idea I had. It was an idea that I helped develop. It was an idea that my late postdoctoral supervisor, Adam Curtis, had, who came to myself and Stuart Reed, a gravity wave physicist, and required a dance floor for cells uh, because he'd noticed that as cells adhered, they vibrated, so he wanted us to vibrate something back at the cells. And so that's how nanokicking came back. It's just a small vibration that tells stem cells what to do. And it's interesting, so I'm just preparing a paper right now uh, looking using nanokicking as a very clean way of differentiating cells without chemicals, without materials, without anything apart from some small vibrations to look at metabolism of stem cells and identify bioactive metabolites. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm interested in regenerative medicine. I, you know, I'm interested in translation, but it's, and I think it's probably the same for Manuel. It's the thought of the fundamental. You know, how do we understand things that gets me out of bed in the morning? And uh, mm-hmm. for some reason, I'm particularly interested in metabolism, which only came about because I bumped into a big box that should have contained a mass spectrometer, and I was with the rep from the company who said, "Oh, there's a great mass spectrometer in this box. You should work out what it, where it is, and what it does." And it turned out it analysed metabolites. So you both are actually very successful, especially within the field and <laughs> life. And so I know there was an article published recently in the Nature Career column by Bella Schmidt on... On how to be successful, on how to... Be on how to that you have to have a five-year plan, kind of to, like think ahead, be able to like see the steps ahead to be a successful individual. What would you say, and that's a question to kind of both of you, what would you say, did you have a five-year plan before, like as a PhD student, let's say as a student, that you want to reach this point and like five years time or so or how did your life kind of path lead you to where you are to you guys collaborating with each other and do you have a five-year plan ahead do you want to stay in academia is that i think it's very hard to have a five-year plan when you're young in science it's funny my dad learned to ride a motorcycle when he was in his 60s and he made a comment to me that he'd been used to driving cars for a long time and when you used to drive for a long time you can see everything all around Mm -hmm. you but when you start learning to ride something like a motorcycle, you're looking just ahead. And I think that's the same with science. You start science and you're looking just at your project. And you're narrowing down into your PhD. But once you finish your PhD and you start as postdoc and supervising projects, you start broadening out what you're looking at again. And then you can start to develop a plan. I don't know when you suddenly realise you've got a five-year plan. Probably when you get a five-year grant. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, you do, you do start to build a vision. But I think it takes quite a long time to build a vision. What makes people successful, in my opinion, and I, I don't really think of myself as successful, I recognise I've had enjoyed some success, but I, I think is accepting the responsibility for what you're doing and being ambitious with that responsibility. You know, you've got ideas, you can see yourself executing these ideas, and you've got the energy and enthusiasm, and you're going to do what's needed to do it. To make you successful, I, I really my most of my thoughts were about my project. I wanted to make a successful project, and I would do anything to make that happen. I, I didn't think that my supervisor was responsible to make the project a success. But at the same time, I knew I knew that I was I wanted to be a professor, not in the long term distance. I didn't I didn't know when this was going to happen, but I had the vision this will happen. And all I had to do at the moment was to work hard in my project and this would come. 
Well, uh, so I, I think a, a concept that I like uh, more and more is is uh, resilience, <laughs> and I think that something that we need to put more energy on to help people to understand that science and research come with a lot of frustration. I mean, most of what we do, um, for one reason or the other, uh, doesn't work. Uh, most experiments fail, most ideas are not successful, um, but we just keep going. And I think that has to be used at any stage of your career, when you are a PhD student, when you are a young academic, when you are an established uh, professor. And I think we, you said you are both successful. And I, I think that the concept of being successful is it'd be a it'd be a mistake because I mean I I'm happy where we are. And I think we I think something that we shared also is the ambition to do something else always. Even if you have had a success, that's not the end. That's just a, a platform to get something else. It doesn't have to be bigger. It has to be something that you are more interested in. Ambition comes with work. Work comes with uh, motivation. And at the same time, knowing that. Uh, the world that we do come with a lot of frustration, and so being a resilient person is, is important. Mm. I have spoken many times about resilience. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I totally agree. Resilience is important. And I think a lot of careers falter because people get fed up with things like rejection, but you've got to work through it. I like these answers a lot, actually. Yeah. That's really good. Uh, that's great. Actually, I want to touch upon now science in general a little bit, because I feel that the general public has sometimes a, like, a little bit of a misunderstanding that they see scientists and science, you know, scientists as like these super smart people that just can come up with scientific discoveries out of nowhere on like a whim. But I feel and I believe that like it's not really a eureka moment most of the time, but it's like a, a laborious process. And I think you kind of touched upon that earlier. How do you feel about this statement? Yeah, sure. Well, do I believe scientists are super smart people? I don't at all. The best researchers are creative people rather than necessarily scientific people. But how do you make a great project? I don't think you can just pull it out of the air, not in my experience anyway. But the best example I think of was with Terry when we were using biogels and we were copying Adam Engler's work on the biogels that Rhinoline had made of strathclyde, differentiating mesoderm stem cells down different routes. And Terry, I, I, you know, I love Terry, she was a great PhD student. Very quiet, and so we we worked on this relationship to, with each other a little bit. Uh, we went out for lunch and had a cup of coffee and stuff, and you know, to try and encourage more talking. Then eventually, we just started doing this experiment with metabolomics to see if we could identify bioactivity metabolites. And together, we came up with this experiment of okay, let's see what the cells are eating, and let's feed it back in and see if it works. And it did. So again, you start to discover the activity metabolites I'm so interested in now. It just takes a moment of realisation. But that realisation comes from, again, it comes from a little bit of worry about the studentship in that case. But ideas, I think, are hard fought for and come from being able to see the big picture and working with someone who's looking at the small detail to suddenly say, OK, this is the good bit. This is the thing that's going to work. It's not what we originally thought, but it's this. And that's what we're going to now pursue relentlessly to get the most impact out of that work we can. Yeah, and I think ideas come also after doing a lot of work maybe 100 years ago, mm-hmm. someone doing quantum mechanics, a great idea, waking up. But ideas in this field come from a lot of work, data, interpretation of data, and collaborative work. It's, it's a team thing. It's, I mean, you can have a great idea, but then you need very good people to implement and to test whether that idea will work or not. So we are very used to looking at data and seeing what there is in it. And young people don't see that so clearly. And you need all that. You need people to help people see the data, to see the wood from the trees. And mammals 
prospect work is right. You, my boss once told me I was lucky, and I took exception to this actually because luck is tends to be a function of effort. People are lucky researchers, or so it seems. But you can bet that person's working very hard to create their luck. They're doing the sensible thing, and they're doing a lot of it. Touching on what you said about having a picture and being able to see these patterns, do you ever worry that there is not an overall hierarchy or an order to the thing that you will never be able to replicate what nature has created because there aren't any rules and there is no harmony between it? But it is, you know, it's it's a gamble. Your question about engineering complexity, I guess, whether we can engineer complexity or not, I don't know. I, I don't. I think nature is too clever for us. I know several of the speakers that we've had at our seminars have said very much the same. Yeah, I remember um, Professor Hutmach actually recently said that we're not going to be able to really replicate a human heart. We should just try scaffolds and let the body just take over and do it itself because it does it better than, than we would ever be able to do. It's tempting to say that, isn't it? But then who could have seen where we were 50 years ago with the technology we have? I mean, when we were young, who'd have thought you'd have mobile phones and computers that could do this and tablets and things like that? You know, you, just, you don't really know. Who knows what the long-term map is? No, but I think that there are, there is order in the universe. There are physical laws governing this order. Whether we know them or not is a different thing. And when you work in bioengineering, everything is very experimental. To make the right decisions needs a lot of personal experience. It's different in different disciplines. And I personally find reassurance in the fact that you have these very well-established disciplines like electromagnetism established more than 100 years ago. So if, if I want a moment of peace in all this chaotic scientific life that we have, I enjoy just going through Maxwell equations, for example, because they are pure truth and the phenomena just follow those equations. And that's a, that's, that's a minimal part of the universe. I think in biological sciences or in trying to engineer that biology, bioengineering, there are so many things to learn. Yet I think we are just at the beginning and we are, in a way, this generation, the last 20 or 30 years, we are pioneering a field that in 100 years might be something completely different. But at the moment, I think we are fortunate because we have a broad field to explore freely with laws that are not very clearly defined um, how they work. It's something clearly different to very deterministic laws of physics, for example. But, uh, I mean, and, and around this field, there have many, many people with many different ideas. But I think I believe that what we are doing is, is not just trial and error, that there is a, a sense and a meaning behind that we are trying to work out. That is very good, because it ties kind of into our next question, a little bit of changing fields. I may be mistaken here, but you used to teach physics? Yeah, in fact, actually, when I did my master's uh, placement at ETH in Zurich, I met a guy from Valencia who said uh, you were his uh, physics teacher or physics professor there, which was very funny. Uh, <laughs> that small world kind of situation. So what would you say, uh, the whole process of changing fields, how was it for you? Was it difficult? Was it daunting to switch from physics to a more biology background? And for you, Matt, from a biology background to a more biomaterials now, more engineering background, and would you say that it's easier for a biologist to learn engineering or for an engineer to learn biology? I don't think we should worry about labelling ourselves. I think we should be like a young indie band, refuse to be boxed, refuse <laughs> I like to that. be labelled. Yeah. You know? I, I, I don't like, I mean, I had this discussion with Matt many times when someone said, oh, I'm the biologist and you are the engineer, because I don't believe in those labels. It's true that I have a physical sciences engineering background. 
and then I moved more towards biology, trying to learn more. Just because I wanted to do my job better. It's not that I wanted to be a biologist. I don't want to. Actually, I don't want to be anything. I just want to contribute to this broad field that is very multidisciplinary. And I think you need to, to speak different languages. It, it can't just be a, a hard border, an interface between an engineer and a biologist. I think they both need to mingle somehow. I mean, you shouldn't be. People, students do worry about this. You know, I mean, looking at the CDT, where, for example, in the lab at the moment, I've got a chemist learning cell culture. And you can see she's a bit nervous about this, but she'll be fine. You know, it's just a tool. I mean, cells are very complex, but I think most disciplines, when you, on a conversational level, are possible. Of course, there's a deeper level that maybe you're not going to get into, but it's not a worry. You know, I, I did chemistry undergraduate degree, then I did a biomaterials PhD, then I came here into the cell biology department, and it was actually an infection immunity when I first came here. We worry about these labels, but we shouldn't. It's just about how do we do the best science we can. But I think the important thing is with the best people we can. That's the important thing, building great collaborations wherever they may be. You know, working with Manuel, a bioengineer, is kind of natural to me because I like biomaterials. Working with Stuart Reid, a gravitational wave physicist, was a bit daunting at first, but again, it's great. You know, I I can't pretend to understand gravitational waves, but we can sort of talk the same language. So, yeah, we did touch upon the complexity of uh, biomaterials and generally science and stuff, and... It's, it's very true. Because it's so complex, sometimes it's very difficult to understand what exactly is going on. And I was actually reading about uh, how AI was sometimes treated as a black box. Uh, for example, in self-driving cars, you have this neural network that is trained to avoid hitting people. And you get certain inputs, you, you show the, the algorithm a person, and you're like, okay, you should not hit this thing that looks like a person. On the other <laughs> hand, if like a plastic bag flies by, the algorithm should obviously realize that's a plastic bag and not a person, so it shouldn't just stop or the middle of the road. But sometimes the algorithm might confuse the person with a plastic bag, and the problem with that is that it hits the person. And uh, being 99.9% accurate in these cases is just not good enough. You need 100% accuracy because otherwise you're going to have a person dying. And the problem with it is that sometimes we just, because the system is so complex, because we just have this big black box of this neural network, we don't understand where this error is coming from. And in a system as complex as biomaterials, how can we make sure that we don't treat it in the same way? Well, I, th- I think that there's, there's a part <laughs> of, uh, part of uh, uncertainty that we can, we won't be able to rule out ever. There, are, there is risk in anything we do, in any activity. So there's going to be a part of any phenomena, of any anything that we do, that it will involve risk. I think this is not something that we should try and work hard because this is, I think this is one of the laws of the universe and it's, it comes out of complexity. Complexity comes with uncertainty. this conversation, this lovely conversation that you just heard with Mar Manuel, we actually um, messed up a little bit and let the computer die while it was recording the tail end of this conversation we had. Yes, but luckily for us, it's only about 30 minutes of conversation that we lost, and most of that was actually just the concluding remarks and a couple of fun games. So we decided that instead of trying to chase them up and waste even more of their <laughs> precious time, we're actually going to narrate what happened. Because it was quite interesting. It was very interesting. I'm also a little bit afraid because I think we made them 
a little late to other commitments other commitments based on how long it went on and i think that it was entirely the lost section of this conversation that made them late yeah in any case uh, we asked them what if they were in academics what job they would like to do and their reply was actually manuel didn't really play by the rules he just said I would always be an academic, which is fair enough. I do really it's, appreciate... No, 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 no. Silly. It is not fair enough. There are clear rules to this game. What would you do if you couldn't be in a STEM subject? There are clear rules. He did break them. It is not fair enough. Okay. But, however, he did say that he often thinks of this question in a different form, in that if he was to retire and not be in science anymore, or not want to be in science anymore, what would he do? He said he would like to be a restaurateur. He would have to his own restaurant somewhere, probably in Spain, because he loves to cook. And then Matt followed up by saying that he would love to be a baker. Which makes sense, because he loves scones. Yes, he does, or as he as says, professed many times. Scones. We then proceeded to ask them about their favorite books, and their answers were quite interesting. I don't remember the exact books, but Matt seems to really love these books about the Napoleonic Wars and uh, ended up actually joking about how England was beating Spain. So. And then I think he said something along the lines of, who wouldn't like that? And Manuel looked like a person who definitely wouldn't enjoy that. I don't actually enjoy reading about most of history. The only section of history that I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy is the part of history where there are multiple popes and each said the other was like the Antichrist. <laughs> right? <laughs> this is such a good section of history. <laughs> Manuel actually about this uh, Portuguese author who wrote different books, but two of the ones they mentioned was one where there was this theoretical scenario at which Portugal and Spain would become an island that would detach from mainland Europe and would just float into the Atlantic and what would yeah. life on that island be. And the other one was if 70% of the people voted with a blank ballot during a political election, what would happen? And lastly, we uh, play a little game with uh, Matt and Manuel, and it's called Guess the Impact Factor. This is a game that we're going to be playing with each of our guests in the future, and we're going to have a little, little scoreboard to see who will do better than the other. Since we put a lot of research into some well-known and even some comical journal titles, we won't ruin these for the next episode, but we will reveal that the score was three points to Matt, two to Manuel. I think Matt guessed quite accurately on a reindeer husbandry journal. Yeah, well, it was quite impressive. I was quite impressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the score was three to two for Matt, and he's right now leading the board. Uh, of, of two people. <laughs> of two people. So uh, that is uh, f a three out of five, I think, that he guessed correctly, exactly. which is impressive. Bottom of the scoreboard is, of course, uh, Manuel trailing behind Matt at two points to three. Yes, indeed. Um, but obviously the highlight of the lost recording is when Stilly and I offered them an unsanctioned catchphrase for their research. Something that just really... Ties it all up in a neat bow in a comical manner, at which they both laughed long and heartily at. And still he had to leave the room with tears in his eyes. Both were crying. I looked heroic. Yeah. But in the end, we would just really like to thank um, both of our guests, Matt and Manuel, for being our first guests on this podcast. We would really like to thank Claire Osborne, who is our lovely producer. She's a treasure, and we really appreciate her. 
And we would also like to thank all of our uh, co-workers and lab mates who have put up with an awful lot of podcast chat and have even sat in for trial podcasts. All the music in this podcast was provided by my wonderful husband, Jaren Velarde. You can find more of his stuff at operatet.com. That's O-P-P-R-E-T-E-T.com. You can find the Glasgow Simi at our website, glasgow.com thecme.org make sure you don't actually write Glasgow Semi because that's a completely different thing our Instagram is the Glasgow Semi and our Twitter is the Glasgow Semi <laughs> Twitter is at the Glasgow Semi now Semi is spelled C-E-M-I so you can find Matt Dalby on Twitter at Dalby Matthew and Manuel at Manuel Mime our personal Instagrams are Stilly Von Greece and That Schofield Girl. Wow, that was our first podcast. It was so stressful. I was literally overthinking everything I was saying. But thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We'll try to keep them coming, and I hope you have a lovely day.